morning. My name is Dave Shoemaker. Joanna and I have been members here for about six years, and it's my privilege to open God's Word to you today. So let's take a second, and I think we got it fixed. There we go. Um, let's take a second, and let's have a word of prayer, and prepare our hearts for listening to the Word. Father, prepare our hearts this morning. We need you. We seek you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't been here in a few weeks, um, we have been preaching through the first two chapters of Ephesians. Uh, We are going to finish up our first little mini-series that we started two full weeks ago. And what we've been, what I've encouraged you to do, if we can, is to read along through the book of Ephesians. So the book of Ephesians is six chapters long, six chapters. So if you read one chapter a day, you can get through it in one week. Or if you miss a day, you can just, you know, catch up and you even get one day off. So we encourage you to do that. Um, You'll find that reading a book of the Bible repeatedly will open it up to you in ways that you never thought it could happen before. So we'd encourage you to do that. So this series, we've been talking about a life of worship. And we've been talking about this pretty short section, although it's one long sentence, chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And um, we've been talking about a life of worship, that God calls us to worship God with our lives. Now, we've been talking about that. If you, oh, good, the chart's up. Um, we talked about the fact that there are three sections to this section, uh, to this um, long sentence. One section deals with the Father. One section deals with the Son. One section deals with the Spirit. And we've taken each one of those for one week. In the first, um, in the second column there, you'll see a call to praise. Each section has a call to praise. So there's this large call to praise to start the whole sentence off. Then each little mini section ends with another call to praise. So everything that's in the second to last column there, the role in salvation, is our motivation for living this life of worship. So in this first section, the father chooses and plans, puts us as uh, adopted sons and daughters. Second section, the son redeems and heads the church makes us members of the church. And in this section, what we're going to find, well, I'll hold off on telling you that. The first two sections, we found that the first section really helps us with our identity. Where do I get my sense of significance, my sense of self in the world, my sense of stability? Do I get that from my job? Do I get that from my social media status? Look, 100 people like my photo. Right? Some of us really do that. And actually, the depression is up, right? You, you guys know the stats, right? Depression is up. Suicidality is up. And about the only difference in people's lives from before and after has been social media. Now, if you go to social media and your identity is in Christ, you're going to be fine. But if your whole identity is wrapped up in social media, what's going to happen? You're going to be in trouble because your whole identity will be based on what other people think and how other people portray their lives. You realize we always put the nice pictures up on social media, right? 
My life is perfect. Look at the latte I had this morning. Right? You don't show the fight that you had with your wife before work. You don't show the sadness that you experienced when you found out your child is rebelling. None of that goes on social media. So for identity, we need to have that in the person, in the work of Jesus Christ to redeem us. So the first section, the father, we are chosen sons of God. That's our identity. Second section, we learned that the son accomplishes the salvation that God lays out. The son accomplishes that through redemption on the cross by fulfilling those Old Testament sacrificial system and fulfills all that, those pictures and buys our redemption through his death on the cross. And he also heads up the church and that gives us a purpose. Big problem in our culture today, purposelessness. Right? We have, especially in young men, but true all across the demographic uh, spectrum. But young men today are listless, hopeless, purposeless. And when there's a vacuum, bad things fill that. Bad things fill that. And so you find that the wrong kinds of things end up becoming people's purposes. If you have your purpose in the person and the work of Christ, now you have a reason to live because you are serving the king of the universe who heads up the church and gives you a purpose. And today we're going to look at the role of the spirit. Okay? So there's two things that I want to accomplish today. Okay? I want to go back and I want to backfill for a second something that I haven't told you about in those first two sections. And that is you, that is we, I'm a Gentile too, but you as Gentiles are actually included in God's plan. Okay? Now, I'll explain in a second. You're probably like, that's obvious. It's not 100%. So, and then the second one is I want to give us one more reason to worship, okay? So, so we're going to get that you, as Gentiles, me, I'm a Gentile, are included in verses 3 through 12, okay? Because the truth of the matter is I've been kind of holding back some information because I didn't want to confuse you in those first two sections. Okay, so let's, let's if you don't mind putting up this, the scripture, um, verse, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 12, I want you to just scan. Don't read the whole thing. Just scan down and look at all those pronouns that I've underlined and bolded. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless. Verse 5, he predestined us. Verse 6, with which he has blessed us, in him we do you get the idea here? There's we, us, we, us. And you go, well, that includes me because I'm part of the we. Well, whenever you're doing Bible study, take note of personal pronouns. Whenever you're reading through Ephesians, there's actually a shift, and we're going to see it here in a second. Okay, so I want you to notice one thing before we finish this slide. So in verse 12, he says, so that we who were the first to hope in the Christ. So we're going to come back to that in a second. Let's go ahead and look at verses 12, excuse me, 13 and 14. If you don't mind popping that slide up there. Look what he says in verse 13. In whom you also. Do you see the shift? So now we have two different groups of people he's talking to. Okay, so again, when you're doing Bible study and you see a shift in pronouns like that, there's something going on. So you have to kind of define who's the we and who's the you. Let's just confirm though, before we, let's finish this verse. In him you also. 
So he includes us, includes the you with the we. When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. So there's this really weird shift between we and you. Now, this seems so insignificant that I probably could have not said it and you wouldn't have noticed it. But I didn't want to do that to you because it's going to be important in chapter 2. But it's actually important in this section as well. So let's go back to to verses uh, 9 through 13 or 9 through 12 if you would. I want you to notice that last phrase in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in the Christ. Okay, so I want you to think about that for a second. Okay, I want you to develop a theory in your head. You don't have to share it out loud. But think about who were the first people to hope in the Christ. Now I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, it's not in Jesus. It doesn't say the first to hope in Jesus. It says the first to hope in the Christ. Now what is, what is Christ? Does anybody know? It's the Messiah. It's the Old Testament word for the Messiah. So who were the first people to hope in the Christ? Gentiles? Jewish people. It's Jewish people. So in the first section, this section that you see here, three through nine, he hasn't talked about Gentiles at all. Because he's talking about the we, the us. Because remember, Paul's a Jew. Paul's Jewish. So he's talking about themselves. Now, once we hit to 12, he includes us. But why the shift? So it's important, and it's going to be even more important in chapter 2, but we need to take a look at that. Okay. So in case you're kind of, I don't know about this, let's look ahead to chapter 2 for a second. If you don't mind popping chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 up there. So this is chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, continuing here. Therefore, remember that you, at one time, you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, the you refers to Gentiles, okay? You refers to Gentiles. And you're still saying, well, why does this matter? Stick with me. Stick with me. So this, this has to do with the fact that there was this ongoing struggle in, throughout the early New Testament period between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Okay? And we see this being dealt with in a really smart, rhetorically wise way by Paul. So I want to take a second and just kind of imagine. Let's split the church in half here. That's a horrible thing to say, isn't it? We don't like that word, splitting a church. But just for the sake of the argument, we're going to split the church in half. And everybody here, over here, is Jewish. Okay, so you guys are Jewish. And everybody back in the first century. And you guys are Gentiles in the first century. I want you to start... Just kind of think about how different you would look. Right? Jewish people over here, all the women would be in very, very specific head coverings. A lot of the Gentiles would be as well. You would have very distinct clothing. Would you have, before the church began, would you have been allowed to even associate with people on this side of the church? You wouldn't. We're not going to read the text today, but we're going to go to text in a few minutes here where... 
Cornelius says to Peter, it's not lawful for you to talk to me. And Peter says, that's okay because God told me it's okay. So literally just a few years earlier, you wouldn't have even associated with people over here and now they're in your church. And they're saying, I don't have to dress like you. Guess what over here? Dan Hagler, are you over here? Are, no? Okay. Over here, if, Dan, if you're over here, you're not allowed to eat bacon. Anybody knows Dan? He loves bacon, right? Right? He, should, he's gonna, he would be over here. Okay. So he would be over here. He would have moved. Over here, you're free. You would have been allowed to have bacon. You would have had, been allowed to dress differently. You would have been uncircumcised. Right? Over here, it would all have been circumcised. Now, that we go, like, big deal. That was a big deal for people on this side of the aisle. It was a great insult. We even saw it in chapter 2. It was this great insult to have this distinction of relating to somebody who was not circumcised. An uncircumcised Gentile. So into this context comes the church. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It's okay for them to stay Gentiles and become Christians. And people over here on this side in the early church, and you see it all throughout the early church, struggled because they said, no, no, no. If you're going to embrace our Messiah and become part of our special religion, you need to stop being like a Gentile and you need to get converted, including circumcision. Not many adult men would like that. Right? On top of everything else. So when Paul says, you Gentiles are also included, what is he saying to every Jewish person in the church? It's okay. It's okay for them not to become Jewish to become Christians. It's okay for them not to become Jewish to become Christians. So he says in verse 13 and 14, in whom also you, after hearing the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you, after believing, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Gentiles over here, you guys are fully accepted. You were in the same category as all the people, the Jewish people, in verses 3 through 6. You're included in the redemption that Jesus offers in verses 7 through 12. And you also are going to be sealed or will have been sealed by the Holy Spirit if you are a believer. Now, here's the strange question, right? Why does Paul wait? Why does Paul bother waiting? I mean, this is just a really strange passage, right? It's just really a little odd that Paul would not point out that Gentiles were included in the first two and wait until the Holy Spirit part until the second. Well, I'm going to make a suggestion as to why. Because I would suggest to you that Paul is being a rhetorical genius here. Okay? Because Paul is going back to what happened in the early church that definitively proved that Gentiles were co-equal with Jews. Does anybody remember what that was? It was... After Pentecost, but yes, 
it has to do with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So let's go to Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. The context of this section is Cornelius was a centurion of the Italian cohort. And he is what they call a God-fearer, okay? And if you're a Gentile, you tolerate God-fearers. But God-fearers were Gentiles who became followers of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, but only went as far as circumcision and refused to go the full Monty, as it were. Okay? That was a bad choice of words. But you get the idea. Okay? They'll go all the way up. They're like, no, nah, circumcision, I'm out. Okay? And so they were God-fears. So, and what he ends up saying is he, he's at his home and he receives a vision from God that says, I want you to send somebody to Peter, the apostle Peter, and call him to you and some cool things are going to happen. That's Dave's paraphrase. So he does. And the very same day that the servants are headed to Peter... Peter has a vision, and this is a really famous vision. The sheet comes out of the heavens, and if you remember, all these non-kosher foods are there. Bacon, mm. lobster, mm. probably wiggly things, Ugh. right? But all those non-kosher foods are on it, and Peter's like, I am not touching that stuff. And what does God say? Eat it. Take it. Eat it, consume it. How many times does it take before Peter submits? Three times he's told, you're going to eat this. Now what's he saying there? What's God telling Peter? If you're allowed to eat their food, they no longer have to come to you and become Jewish to become a Christian. Well, they never had to. But in order for them to be co-equals in the church, they did not have to convert to Judaism to become true Christians. And so what happens is the servant comes right after that, invites them, and then Cornelius and Peter get together. So this is what happens. So Peter is talking to Cornelius about what's been going on. And this is what he says in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? You see? So the external manifestation of the spirit coming upon them was the speaking in tongues. And when they spoke in tongues, that demonstrated not that they were true believers, but rather God had accepted them so that they could be accepted as true believers. Now, I worded that very carefully because there are some traditions who take that passage that we read and say, if you have not spoken in tongues, you're not truly a believer. Okay? And as, as much as we would love them as other brothers in Christ, we would disagree with them, okay? Because the New Testament is very clear that if you do receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is the gift of tongues, that it's not for everybody. Only a select number of people have or will receive that gift. 
And so it's not from the rest of the scripture. We know you don't have to speak in tongues to be a believer. But there are some that would teach that. And we lovingly disagree with those brothers in Christ. But what does this say though? It does prove something. What does it prove? That we don't have to convert to Judaism to be Christians. That in Christ... The new covenant has come and we do not have the regulations of the old covenant set upon us. And so we are free. And so we're free. Look at another passage, Acts chapter 15, verses 5 through 11. And this is the famous Jerusalem council. And the Jerusalem council actually came together for this exact question. They came together for this exact question. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Do you see? This is that fight. This half of the church, at least many of them, were looking at the Gentile half of the church and going, you need to be like us. And the Gentiles were like, no, we don't. And that was causing conflict. And it's the party of the Pharisees. And it kind of figures the people who were the strongest religious leaders in Judaism who converted to Christianity would kind of carry that tradition forward. But they were wrong. So verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord just as they will. So where we have this definitive declaration in the early church that you did not have to become Jewish to become a believer. And yet, you have this problem where Paul spent two years in Ephesus. And now when he's writing back, they're still having this problem. Now we're going to see it even more in chapter 2. To be honest, if this was the only time I saw it, I'd have been tempted just to move on and not take in 10 minutes of a message to deal with it. But it's a really important topic. So I had to deal with it because we're going to see it in chapter two. So in two weeks, we're going to come back and just revisit just the beginning of that for about a minute. And then we're going to move forward and show you why that's important in chapter two. So here's the thing. I don't know. And if we do, awesome. That'd be cool. But I don't think we have a lot of Jewish believers in our church. So I don't think we have this problem. Right? But let's be honest. Don't we have a struggle dealing with people who are different than us? Yeah, I I, kind of do. I have to really work hard at that. I'm going to tease Pastor Chuck now. I wore a collar for Pastor Chuck. And And Pastor Chuck was not serious about me teasing me about not wearing a collar up here. But were you tempted to be mad at the fact that maybe I didn't wear a collar and you were like, you should be wearing a collar up there. Really, is that what the gospel is all about, wearing collars? I mean, I'm free to eat bacon. can I wear a collarless shirt? Yeah. How about this? Look, I do think there's a worldview that's important. 
And I think there's political implications to what we believe about the gospel. But can I be best friends or church, fellow church members with somebody that I disagree with politically? Would that be countercultural today? Does the gospel call us to be loving people, loving people even with whom we disagree? Yeah. Yeah, it does. God calls us to unite in one body and move forward to help redeem the world. Petty differences don't matter. Petty differences don't matter. And so God calls us to be not Jews, not Gentiles, not Republicans, not Democrats, not we are followers of Christ, period. And we will live for him. And we will seek our identity and purpose in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what's going to unite us. Not politics, not hobbies, not making fun of them, not essential oils, not veganism, not Second Amendment, not whatever. We're followers of Jesus Christ. We're followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to fix a relationship or two in this church. Maybe that's something you need to deal with. So that's the one thing I wanted to deal with today. We are one body in Christ. Amen? All right. Second thing I want to deal with is the the last reason that Paul gives us for worship. The last reason that Paul gives us for worship. And we find this actually in verses 13 and 14. So he says this in verses 13 and 14. In whom also you, after hearing the word of truth, that is to say the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you, after believing, were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this is a very specific wording, and it's probably best understanding is referring back to the promised Holy Spirit from the Old Testament. If the Holy Spirit is promised in one place in the Old Testament, that's the New Covenant. That's the biggest difference between Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there are a whole bunch of different ministries that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And sometimes it's temporary, sometimes it's permanent. He only focuses on two things here. Okay? He only focuses on two things, so that's the only two things we're going to talk about. Okay? So he says this, though. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we, we don't have seals today. Um, so I'll make a parallel in a second, but sealing something was a way of documenting that this was your property or that it was really coming from you. So most of us have seen old like shows or movies of an old scene in the Middle Ages where a king will write a letter and he's got to make sure it's a top secret letter and he's got to make sure that the people who read it actually know it's from him. And he, what does he have on his finger that he uses to make the seal? He's got a signet ring and that signet ring is unique to him, correct? So what he does is, and I was thinking about doing it up here, but it, it would have been too messy and I would have ruined it and started a fire and I didn't want fire code to be... But right, he would take, they, would, they didn't have lighters back then. They took a match, whatever, took it to the fire. They started a fire, got the stick in the fire. They would melt the candle and drip it onto the seal of the, or the, 
the edge of the letter. And then they would let enough of that wax build up and they would put his imprimatur on there, his imprint. And we have that word imprimatur, right, Latin. We use that sometimes today, talking about your signature or proof that it's you that wrote it. Okay? So when we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the seal for us and God the Father stamps his signet upon us and says, you are my child. How cool is that? We, if we are believers here today, we are his children and we are stamped with his identification. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us in the terms of this ministry, the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, he says something else. So you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And he says the Holy Spirit is the earnest money. Most of your translations probably have something like down payment. Yeah? Probably the down payment. That's another way of saying earnest money. And I'll I'll show you a distinction here in a second. But he is the redemption. Excuse me. He is the earnest money or down payment of our inheritance. So if you buy a house today, down payment is something that you pay so that you have equity built up in the house. That's not what this is talking about. Okay? When you pay earnest money, it's the money that you, that $1,000 check or whatever it is these days, ask, I don't know, Marty Hill, you can tell me later. Okay? You sign it and that guarantees that you are going to buy the house. Now, legally today, there's like you could blow your nose or, or say the spigot looks funny and I don't want it. You can get your earnest money back. That's not how it worked back in the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean world. Okay? But if you give that $1,000, say, for the earnest money to guarantee that you're going to come up with the financing and you're going to do all that, you would lose that money if you didn't come back and pay the rest. Right? That's a earnest money. It's not a down payment. not the same thing. So the Holy Spirit is God's earnest money that he's going to come back and redeem us. Now stop and think about that for a second. It's not that we're going to lose out on something if Jesus doesn't come back and return and come back and redeem us. Who's going to lose out? In that picture, the father would lose who? If, follow me, you catching it? If the Holy Spirit is the earnest money and if God doesn't come back and redeem us, Who loses whom? The father loses the spirit. Do you think the son and the father are ever going to lose the third member of the Trinity? What does that tell you about the guarantee that we have? God is going to redeem us. There is no turning back. He places the seal upon you. And then he guarantees our eventual salvation By paying the Holy Spirit as earnest money. And the Father and the Son would never turn their back on the Spirit and not redeem him. You see? So we have a guarantee. We have a guarantee. So let's go back and kind of review the big chart here. So we have the Father gives us identity. The Son ultimately gives us purpose. What what does the Spirit give us? Ultimately, the Spirit gives us confidence, a guarantee, a guarantee. 
And I skipped. Could you pull the next verse up for me? I just want to confirm this from other verses. There's one other verse. John 10, 26 through 29 says this. But you do not believe because you are, but you do not believe, speaking to some unsaved people here, because you are not from among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Do you see? If you are truly a believer, your inheritance is guaranteed. You are in the hands of the father and no one is able to pluck them out of his hand. That gives us confidence. That gives us confidence. So the father, if we don't mind bringing that chart back up for me, the father's choice and adoption gives us identity. The son gives us purpose and the Holy Spirit gives us confidence. Now, there's way more, right? I'm oversimplifying here, but that's the main lines of the application is that the Holy Spirit is going to guarantee. He seals us, he marks us out and he guarantees and that gives us confidence. And that gives us confidence. So let's kind of, kind of bring this home here. We've been talking about this life of worship. We've been talking about this life of worship. What does it give us in the world? You know, for a long time I thought, well, you know, I get to be miserable in this life and then I get to go to heaven and it sounds a lot better than going to hell, so, mm. right? And it took me a long time to figure out that what the world offers is very alluring at first, but extremely destructive. I recently heard a, a non-Christian psychologist make the statement that he agreed with the biblical passage that be sure your sins will find you out. And he's not a believer that I, could, that I know of. But he said, I have in all of my years of practice, I've never seen even the smallest sin practiced regularly that doesn't come back and damage you. And a lot of times we, tend to, we, we get tempted to think that what the world offers us is extremely appealing and what we're doing is being miserable now so that we can have a better life later. That's not how the Bible portrays the Christian life. That's not how the Bible portrays the Christian life. We have a status with God whereby we can be confident in our identity. We have a life lived with purpose and we have a life lived in confidence. Why else can people, actually was visiting with a friend yesterday and met there for the first time, met his grandchild and his daughter and son-in-law who are studying to be missionaries in some backwater village in Brazil. How can you confidently go there knowing that, who knows, you might get killed, you might get bit by some exotic snake or spider and die? How can you stride into the world if you don't know your identity and if you don't have confidence in God and you don't have a purpose in your life? Brothers and sisters, our world around us, they're dying for these three things. They're dying for these three things. And we keep it clammed up and hidden inside and we can offer this to them. And we can offer this to them and say, join us in worship. Join us in worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our triune God. 
So here we have it. Are you here struggling with identity? Maybe you've been watching a little too much TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Meta, whatever they call that now. And maybe your identity is being shaken a little bit. And maybe you're a little confused and you go, maybe I am, fill in the blank. God calls you to be the, the, the man or woman that he made you. And he calls you to find your identity in him. And he calls you to find your purpose in him. And he calls you to find your confidence in him. We have that to offer to the world if we'll be brave and we'll speak. So our triune God calls us to a life of worship. The Father gives us identity. The Son gives us purpose. And the Spirit gives us confidence. Isn't that a great truth? I just can't wait for next section in Ephesians. If this is how powerful, impactful this stuff is, let's keep going and see what God does with our lives, yeah? All right, let's pray. Wow, Father, you are so good to us. You give us these things, this identity, this confidence, this purpose. You've called us to be your children. Help us to submit, knowing that ultimately, even if we're tempted by the immediate allure, that even in this life, that your life is better. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.